0: The following sermon is brought to you by ThePreachersVault.com Bringing old time preaching to a new generation Okay, we may be ready to go Tyler is always doubling down Working extra hard to get this stuff going And I appreciate that uh, Many of you have asked through yesterday and today, how my testing and all went. I told a couple of different people the same thing. Everything went well as far as you know the annual checkups go. I was telling a few different people before I realized perhaps what was going on that it was probably the smoothest, easiest heart cath I've endured, and I've had about 40 or so probably, but it's probably by far the easiest. And then yesterday, when I slept all day long, which I typically do that a little bit. I realized, I vaguely recall, uh, they always give me a a cocktail of fentanyl and um, Ativan. Well, they've changed that to uh, morphine and Ativan. And I I vaguely recall the doctor saying something just as it got started. He said, go ahead and give him a little bit more Ativan. And so what I have realized is it probably didn't go any better than normal. It's just I didn't know what was going on. (laughs) And so um, that type of stuff hangs on to me very very hard and so yesterday I was asleep all day the day it took me till about noon to get my brain back and I'm not gonna guarantee it's working right now so just be ready for that Uh, go ahead and take your Bibles and open them with me to the book of Mark when you get there go to Mark chapter 1 we're gonna be examining here tonight looking or beginning uh, a new context for us beginning in verse 21 it goes from chapter uh, 1 verse 21 in my mind, and I've divided this up several different ways, but basically through verse 34. Now, with that being said, there are several subheadings that come in under that. The basic two main ones that come up is it's all about the command or, if you will, the authority, the power that Jesus has. And that's in two categories. The first one being here 20 and, uh, 21 and 22 of this context. And that is the command that he carries with his word. So the command that he has with his word. And then the second part of this, which goes really from 23 through 34, before there's a brief pause in it, is the command that he carries concerning his works. And of course the word works, uh, it goes alongside of signs, wonders, and different things, including miracles. And so that's really what he's gonna jump into. And he's gonna show his command or his authority by committing both to words and to works and so we're just going to uh, look again we've got some parallel context in this case this specific part of this or this section of this only has one parallel and that was the one found here in Luke chapter 4 verses 31 and 32 and uh, unlike most of the context we've covered so far there's not a lot of insight given by Luke because he and Mark say essentially exactly the same thing and essentially the same supposedly brief words, but just like, uh, just like was illustrated to us a few moments ago how important a word can be or a series of words, I think the same impact comes along here. Even though we only have two verses in Mark's account, two verses in Luke's account, those being the same basically, or essentially those words are very important. So this will lay the groundwork for much of what we have to say. But looking directly into the text right here, Uh, You'll see it on your Bibles and maybe even on the screen behind me. Here's what it says or reads. And when they went into Capernaum, and straightway on the Sabbath, he entered into the synagogue and taught. And they, that is all those that were around, were astonished at his doctrine. For he taught, that's Jesus, them as, as one that had authority and not as one of the scribes. And so uh, oftentimes we've already noted this, the word immediately, straightway, that sort of thing that comes into play many, many times throughout this book. Some 41 times, as a matter of fact, the way I've kind of hand counted that. A number of those times have already occurred in this context up into this point, beginning in verse 10, verse 12, I think verse 18 and verse 20 as well, straightway and immediately are found. And so Mark is keeping up his pace but one of the words that starts to stand out right here is the word authority. Or if this case being literally the King James translates it as that of, I'm um, uh, looking back at it straightway, and he entered in and taught not as, but he taught as one who had authority. That word will be found a number of times translated as authority. And or power throughout the book and that is kind of a secondary theme of one of the things that mark carries along now The first thing I want to key on here is the shift that jesus has made He's already began to move from one place to the next to the next and he'll do that throughout this Matter of fact, jesus is going to be extremely busy in around the area of galilee But as it, it tells us specifically right here, he came into Capernaum. Now, I've got a little uh, blue handwritten mark I put in here. This means the village of Nahum. We'll see more about that a little bit later. That doesn't necessarily have to do with the Old Testament uh, book or prophet of Nahum, but it very well could. It's just the area in which he's in. It's kind of what I would call the district, if you will. And I use that term because it would be more like we might define a county in our area. You know, we've got states, we've got counties, we've got cities. And then even inside of that, we've got communities. Uh, We don't necessarily call them villages anymore, but that's basically where he is. He's come into a certain area that ultimately would be probably most likely defined as his kind of home base. And so Jesus has moved around quite a bit in his life already. But just to look at a little bit of that, I won't take too much time with this. And again, as usual, I don't expect that you can see all of this, particularly the little uh, chart on the right-hand side. But this kind of enumerates these 13 different places to which Jesus would land in the book of Mark. It kind of divides those out in supposed chronological order, although he kind of does like we do. You know, sometimes in one day I'll go from Munford to Taldiga and back to Oxford, and back to Munford again. He made some shorter moves like that. But basically, it follows the line of him beginning his life as he was birthed, given birth to in Bethlehem. Shortly thereafter that, you remember his family escaped for a period of time over into Egypt. And then eventually he comes back to live out the majority of his life. As a matter of fact, up until his earthly ministry would start, his uh, physical ministry as he walked about, uh, when he ultimately ended up in the areas of Jerusalem and then the Jordan River, the wilderness of Judea and so forth. And even Capernaum listed here as number 10. And that's just based upon biblical references, trying to put these things in chronological order where he would end up landing. But Mark tells us specifically that he has made his way into Capernaum. Now what interested me, and I don't have the, the mileage, I didn't take the time, I guess I should have, but what interests me about this is just how much ground this man is covering already, just based on the fact that what he desires to do is fulfill the word of God. You know, remember back in the context when we we're talking about him being baptized and the reasoning behind him being baptized, he reported to John that he was doing so in order for us, Uh, he puts himself in with the people to fulfill, quote, all righteousness. And so if you just kind of draw the map out the way it's laid out right here, then that immediately puts him kind of where he had his start, uh, up in the area or in and around um, the area of Bethlehem. But then he ends up, his family and all go all the way down, land into Egypt, and now he's made his way all the way back up into Nazareth. And then he spends most of his time just circling around in the beginning part of this at least, just circling around the Sea of Galilee. And we talked I think last week or maybe the week before a couple different times about the Sea of Galilee, uh, the Sea of Chenareth, the Sea of Gesenareth and other names that come along with that. But that's basically along the lines of where he spent the majority of his time. Now, just a few interesting things and I won't even mention all that we put up on the screen. But when you notice some of these places, for example, This happens to be one of those places that is still identifiable. You can still go there and it will still be called the city of Capernaum. It'll still be listed as that. So you can go around and you see a lot of the things, much of which exist in a very similar state to which they were then. Capernaum in this day, I mean in Jesus' day, as you can see from the kind of the seaside look at it, from the Sea of Galilee looking back toward it, was a little bit of a hustling and bustling place. It was not the the top of everything. Of course, Jerusalem eventually would be all of that, but as far as its area in and around Galilee, uh, it's reported at least that there were many, many docks that went out into the waters. Uh, some of those little land docks they had created, they don't exist as well today, but supposedly they were up so upwards of 100 feet long. Uh, and so they would be able to go out and board their ships through those little peninsulas and such as that. This area was extremely important to that fishing industry as it was kind of on that northwestern side of it. And so it's not exactly for sure exactly when this city came about. Generally speaking, they assume about 1,500 residents at that time. Uh, the, the modern ruins, if you will, of the city are owned by two churches. And I hope you'll see the quotations I put around that, very large quotations. But two different religious, supposedly religious groups on that, on that or uh, keep up the property, that area. Normally marked by the Greek Orthodox here, which actually built a dome on top of it, which is pretty recognizable. And I'm told stands is somewhat of a marker to that. So that's kind of the city of Capernaum. This is again where Jesus was, ultimately might be considered his home base. So one of the other things here, and this is arguably not exactly sure when this particular structure was built, but that's supposedly a picture of one of the synagogues there in Capernaum. Uh, The original synagogue, obviously not there, and as you know, it's kind of their tradition throughout history then around this area that they would oftentimes build one thing upon another upon another. So a lot of this has to be dug out and eventually excavated back down to find what is more original. Uh, This one right here was most likely built, and people argue over it, most likely could have been built as as late as the 4th century, which would be quite a bit removed from Jesus and is most likely quite a bit more ornate or more fancy, we might call it, than what he would have been entering into the synagogue listed here. But nonetheless, the structure probably similarly uh, laid out and that sort of thing. I won't go into the rest of that. Of course, he spent a lot of time in the synagogues, and we'll see that as we get a little bit farther than this. And then the last picture here, this is supposedly... Uh, the house of Peter, which is there found in Capernaum. And you remember that Jesus in the preceding context uh, met up with Simon called Peter, uh, also Andrew, his brother, and then James and John in this exact place or in this exact area on this side of Galilee. And Peter's house is reported to be there. And this is supposedly an excavated portion of that. Now, whether or not all that's exactly accurate, I can't tell you. I can tell you from what I've been able to discover, and I haven't been there to see it either, uh, but a lot of these places that you'll find the modern day uh, religious groups, the Greek Orthodox, the Jews, whatever, uh, claiming they're just making guesstimations at that, and they're handpicking places, some of which are are done for such a purpose as their commercialization. You know, it'd be mighty fine to say, well, this is the exact spot on which Jesus was born, or uh, where he died, or any of those things, if you can say, well, I just happen to own that property too. And so, of course, there's some things that go on like that. But most likely this could actually be the household of Peter. Not that that matters anything to our context other than to say that when Jesus was there, this was already fairly, not huge, but a fairly prominent place. And so he made an intention of being there in places like that. Now, just to look at some of the details of the text, and this is what we'll try to accomplish. Uh, Beginning to read it again. In verse 20, or I'm sorry, verse 21. And he went into Capernaum and straightway on the Sabbath, he entered into the synagogue there and taught. So looking at some of the details of that, when you look at, for example, the the Capernaum, I mentioned a while ago it was a village of Nahum. Uh, The literal name there meant something, the effect of comfort. So I don't know what all that boils out to be, but the area where Jesus was, we can assume became fairly comfortable Now that's not that he would be completely accepted by these people. There would actually be times when Jesus even would have to rebuke the city of Capernaum specifically for uh, their lack of acceptance of him as the Messiah. But nonetheless, he was in a place that may have been somewhat comfortable, became comfortable to a point uh, to him. Uh, These synagogues that we have, well I'm skipping over something here. Uh, You can also understand that he was there on the Sabbath day. Now we think about the Sabbath day. What, what period of time, what day each wheel of the week did the Jews mark as the Sabbath? What was laid, that was laid out for them as Saturday. And of course there's all the arguments against the fact that we do not uh, gather on the Sabbath day and that the Sunday is not our new Sabbath day, anything such as that. But in the, the time in which Jesus lived, the Sabbath day was an actual day that was being commemorated celebrated, and even by a command of God. That goes as far back as Genesis chapter 2 and verse 3, also Exodus chapter 28 through 11. He reemphasized that. And then in Mark chapter 2, I want you to just look, turn one page It's what I have to do at least. In Mark chapter 2, and looking down as far as verse 28, which you won't see verse 28, will you? That'd be tough to do. Y'all got 28 years? Yeah, there it is. And therefore the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. So Jesus emphasizing there, we'll get to that context much later, but Jesus was not only using the Sabbath day to, his, to the, the worship that he would commit to or that he would be required to do. He was using it to his advantage, but he also wanted to eventually let people know that he was the Lord of that. Of course, there would be accusation brought against his disciples and such, or what they believed, at least some of the Jews and the scribes believed to be their misgivings on the Sabbath day. And Jesus emphasized that he was, because he was God, was in turn the Lord of the Sabbath. And then coming down to the wording here, he entered into the synagogue. The synagogue. Now, this synagogue here, and it's defined from two different perspectives. On the one hand, the word synagogue simply means a gathering place. And so I, I'm not implying this too far Obviously, just to to consider that, a gathering place for us might be Walmart. I mean, it doesn't have to be something religious. In this case, however, it was. But these, these synagogues in that day, at least from what I've been able to dig out, were many times often obviously used for religious purposes. They were used for gathering places under which they would teach, in which they would learn, which they would study the laws, particularly the scribes, the Pharisees and such would gather there. And they would kind of, Offer for their teaching to the public in some sense. But also these places were generally used uh, for schoolings or schoolhouses. They were used for other events and purposes. They were gathering places in general where you could go on any day and find people. But on the Sabbath day, they would obviously be much more uh, prominent there. So that's synagogue and type of thing. Now if you look down to chapter 1, In verse 39, we have more reference to that. It says, And he preached there in the synagogues, that's plural, throughout all of Galilee and cast out devils. And again, just like you would see the phrase immediately or uh, straightway or forthwith or anon, those meaning things that move at a quick pace, that secondary thing, you would see that authority and that power as being a theme of Mark's account as well You can follow along and find all the number of times. I didn't take time to list them out, but there are a dozen or so of these. When Jesus would move from one synagogue, a marked synagogue, a gathering place, to the next. And again, he used that as a great advantage of his. Now, what Jesus would do in setting the pattern before his disciples to gather in those synagogues, we also find the apostles doing, much of which were Paul related in different areas. And that's where I've got these side references there in verse uh, Acts chapter 13 and, and following and such as that, 13:14 and such. The Apostle Paul also with some of those other apostles made a habit of meeting in the synagogues, particularly on the Sabbath. And we find several times where as the Apostle Paul was pushed from city to city, he would make it a point to be in his next location on the Sabbath, or he would stay up until the Sabbath or through the Sabbath in order so he could gather there at those synagogues. And it tells us that. But it adds to that that he was on in the, at the Sabbath day, he was in the synagogues, and he taught. He taught. And of course, this is where we get the idea that Jesus is beginning to verbalize, and as he goes out with their tradition of the synagogues, most likely what happens was basically they came into the place, they gathered, a copy of the law would be brought out, the Torah particularly would be brought out, and someone who'd be an attendant to that would read those scriptures typically. And then at that point, basically, they would open up their um, assemblies for other rabbis or teachers, that's all that word means, that they could step up and either read additional scripture and or make explanation of the scripture that was there. But that was generally left up to a certain lineage or a certain group, again, like the scribes, the Pharisees, whatever They kind of took charge of that. They trying to made sure that they were always the last word, you might say, in the way they did that. So it's even interesting that Jesus got the opportunity to stand up. I don't know exactly how he went about doing that, other than I would assume his influence had gotten him into that position, to where he got that opportunity. But what he does on this day, and we'll see it in just a moment, is much different than what they have done. When he stood up to teach on the Sabbath day in the synagogue, all these things aligning for themselves, it says specifically here that he astonished. They were astonished by his doctrine. Now in the context right here, what we're reading, you find the word astonished right here written in in this verse. If you go across the page, You find out as well, verse 27, I say across the page, that's where mine is. If you go down or across to verse 27, when he begins to commit to doing his works or his wonders, his miracles, there also it tells us they were all amazed. Now the word astonished and the word amazed are slightly different. The word astonished right here means they're struck. It, It caught their attention. I would assume you could might even imply that that implies that they were in somewhat of shock. Because there was such a distinctive contrast between what he was teaching and the methods by which he would teach and what the others, that's the comparison here in the verse, were doing. When you get down across the page, again in verse number 27, and it says, And they they were all amazed. That word means that they were struck similarly, but it means to the point of being terrified. They somehow became terrified or physically afraid of what Jesus was doing. Now, why would that be? Uh, my assumption is, and it's just my assumption is, that they had not seen anything like this before, and by Jesus coming in and beginning to heal people, such as the demonic, that's the context, in verses 23 and f- through about verse 28, when he would eventually heal the mother-in-law of Peter, verses 29 to 31, when he would heal many others, verses 32 to 34, as they were seeing that done, that was ungetoverable. That's the word I learned from uh, Billy Bland up in Memphis. That was ungetoverable. They couldn't do anything with it, and of course they would do things oftentimes to deny his miracles, to negate his miracles and such. But ultimately, they could not get past or get over the miracles that he was doing, and that's when they were amazed. But at this point, they're simply astonished, quote, at his doctrine. The word doctrine there just simply means his teaching in the method by which he taught. It says, for he taught as one uh, that had authority in the contrast of that and not as one of the scribes. Now, what's interesting about this when you see the word authority right here and we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit more but the word that's used here for authority is very much similar to what again Brad did with the word Lord because the word authority implies that this was just His being. This was not Jesus building upon a talent or a skill or something that he had learned. You remember Jesus had spent much time in the synagogues in different places, oftentimes learning at the feet of these men, even from the point he was a young lad coming up. But this was not a result of that. The authority he carried was because he was God. It was simply his being that made that possible. and We'll tie a little bit more to that. Lord willing, in just a minute. So when you think about what we have in the context here, we've, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, I have a little note, a footnote in my Bible here and it said that uh, his teaching was different from that of the scribes and Pharisees because he did not lean on the wisdom of other teachers and rabbis. That's exactly right. We're going to get to that in the next slide, as a matter of fact. His teaching was of of a great contrast right there. So kind of the red things I've got right here, the district where he was, that's Capernaum, the doctrine that he taught, of course, would be his. And then the difference between that is going to be very distinct. And we'll see that here in just a second. Now, what you're going to see here in a moment, please, uh, uh, it, it's somewhat of a joke, but it's somewhat of an illustration of how we need to pay attention to things, okay? So just be ready for that. You see those two pictures right there? I'll give you exactly 15 seconds to find the five differences. Oh, you ain't supposed to tell anybody. All right. That's 15 seconds. There they are. The clouds are different. The trees are different. The wing is missing. The tail is different. And the egg is there. You say, okay, that's about the dumbest thing I've ever done on Wednesday night. Well, it is. But that's how Jesus' teachings were. When they heard the scribes teach up until that point, I, I can only assume that most people had been impressed by that up until a point. They had by some means been able to gather crowds. They had by some means been able to gather men in to come and sit at their feet, to hear their teachings and such. But when Jesus comes, his teaching is just enough different that it caused them to be astonished. That it kind of blew their mind in the fact that it was Similar in the case that it was pointed toward God, similar in the case that it was leaning on God and His Word for some of its uh, premise and for some of its principle, but it was also distinctive in the case that there were differences. And these differences were notable in what Jesus said. Yes? It was said of him, if you remember, uh, in Luke chapter 2, when his parents lost him in the temple, and he was teaching in the temple at 12 years old. All that heard him were astonished at his understanding and his answers. And when they saw him, they were amazed. Yep. Because that's his beak. Because he was teaching different than everybody else because he had a thought. Right. And that's what it comes down to in the context of both places, Luke 2. As well as in Mark, where we are right now, verse one, or chapter one, and also Mark chapter, I'm sorry, Luke chapter four, <coughs> all of these things apply. Now, what are the differences? Now, these are just some of the differences that stood out to me. These are certainly not a full list of that, <coughs> but it comes down to one major thing. Number one, Jesus presented when he taught, he always taught important matters. You know, the scribes and Pharisees, particularly the way they had divided the old law out, it was often reported that their attacks on people be based on very minimal things. You know, did you untie your donkey on the Sabbath day? Did you help a man out of the ditch on that same day? Did you do, and they listed out all these rules or bylaws that they had come up with that they taught which were basically trivial in their nature. Do we have any report of Jesus doing anything trivial in his life? When he sat down with any group and said, well, let's just forget religious things like now. We'll talk about uh, the games that are going on down in Rome. We don't know that he did that. And I'm not exaggerating. I don't believe Jesus just strictly just spoke God, God, God all day. But when he took time to spend time to teach someone and to teach these people, whether it be through his words or through his wonders, He always did that very intentionally, and he presented only the important matters. Secondarily to that, I kind of jotted down, he did that systematically. I've got some side references here as well. Uh, When he taught someone, he taught someone with a purpose. He might teach them one principle in order to prepare their hearts to understand the next or the next. And he's very systematic in that. He did not ramble. He did not jumble things up. We would call it he didn't read around the bush. He didn't waste time. And he was known for that. He typically captivated his audience in crowds without his illustration or his parables. And that went up into a point where even his disciples on a couple of three different occasions actually asked him, why is it that you're teaching in parables? Why even do that? Jesus was being intentional in that. He taught them with parables because that gathered their attention and if nothing else, and if you've ever stood up oh, half of the... Population even has a potential in here, but if you ever stood up and taught a class or preached a sermon or did an invitation or, or taught a class in even the younger grades, you probably already realize a lot of times you'll go through a, a sermon or a class period or whatever, it might be 30, 40 minutes, you'll get all the way to the back and somebody will remember what? One little thing. And that's, that's all well and good, but it, humans don't necessarily catch everything. We just don't. So Jesus taught in parables because that often did. Because if you could go home after hearing Jesus and not necessarily remember each and every principle, but remember that storyline, you could generally line those things back up. At least I'm able to do that from even reading what we have here today. He spoke out of love. They often spoke with ulterior motives, which I learned today that's how you spell ulterior. Because if you put an A in front of that, you're gonna spell all day long. But that's, that's it with a U somehow ulterior motives. Um, he spoke, and this is the main thing, this is what matters and what was referenced a moment ago, the reason he is said to have spoken differently than the scribes or in a contrasting manner to them was because he taught with one, quote, who have or having authority. He taught from his father's authority principally in contrast to what they often did because what they often did is they quoted others of their own cohorts. They would quote, quote people like Hillel or something like that. They would quote modern scribes, rabbis, what have you, pharisaical types. They would quote them to try to prove their cases. <coughs> Jesus didn't take time to do that. He went to the authority of God, except for the fact when oftentimes he took it a little bit farther and he spoke of his own authority. And You see that many times. I've got the ones referenced here principally from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, 22, and also 43 and 44. He says that you have heard that it hath been said, but I say also unto you. So Jesus had enough authority to not even have to quote the Father God in every occasion because he possessed that Godhead, that deity within himself. And that comes out of the principal idea and something I referenced just a moment ago, hurriedly, we look at, but the idea of the word here for authority. Now, I don't pronounce this right. You're welcome to try anything you want to with it, but it's something that the effect of exthusia, exthusia. Now, the ex right here on this Greek word that backs up authority can also be translated as power as well. But the ex means out of, like that exit sign, And enthusiasm meant to be, or it's a principle of being. And that's, again, just who Jesus was. And you'll see that several different times when it's used in the following chapter, when he he comes up into the uh, the side of the pool of Bethesda, and he heals the man that was sick there. The principle stated there is, verse uh, I think it's in verse 10. In verse 10, yes, of chapter 2, Mark chapter 2. But as you may know that the Son of Man hath power, that's the same word, exthusia, on earth to forgive sins. He said to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, rise, take up thy bed and walk. Jesus had that power within him. It was a part of his being. And so that made him very much different than what they did. So that's kind of the things that we have. Now, what do we learn from this? I've tried to accomplish the meaning, the man and the message of this. Uh, Several of the things that come out just from these two little verses in my mind come down to a few things. But one, Jesus always, and Mark reports this as good as anyone because of his faster pace. Jesus always saw a need for teaching others. He always took that opportunity. And when you make the transition here from chapter 1 of Mark into chapter 2, that's a whole lot of what he had to say. You look in verse 45 of chapter 1, for example, and he went out and began to publish it. Much and to blaze abroad in the matter, inasmuch that Jesus could no more openly enter, in the, enter into the city, but was without in desert places, and they came to him from every quarter. You back up the page just a little bit in that, and you see that he had spoken. I'm sorry, verse 44, and it said, "See thou sayest nothing to any man, and go thy way and show thyself a the priest and offer up for thy cleansing." which is that of Moses and testimony or in the testimony unto them. That's when he went out to a place. So he's speaking here or he's teaching or he's proving his authority constantly by his teaching as well as by his wondrous works. The second principle here, he saw the need for going where the people were. Jesus took opportunity, obviously, to, to teach whomever he encountered, but he also had no problem going where they were. That's what he does when he goes into the synagogues. That's what he does a little bit later in in any of these gospel accounts when he goes to the pool. I'm I'm sorry, he goes to the well, the woman who is located there. He's going to teach someone where they are, like as we should. And he also saw the need of being distinctive in his teaching. You know, one of the things that, uh, and and I saw this happen today, I, I don't want to get into it, but one of the things that boils me over. It's when you see someone who supposedly represents Christ, teaches supposedly the doctrine of Christ, but when you step away, you can't tell it. You can't tell by the what they're teaching, the content of what they're teaching, that there's anything different about what they teach and what anybody else will teach about any God in any place because they focus so much on just moral principles instead of stating the absolute facts of what Jesus would have for them to know. So... We don't have the time. We're out of time to get to the next context of this. But he begins to use authority or his command through his works. Any question, comment? I tried to move fast. I skipped a lot, but all righty. Thank you.